0: And please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. That's going to be uh, where we're going to be uh, preaching from this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. And it's always tricky to do these standalone sermons um, because... You know, you always want, there's so much background, there's so much that goes into every epistle that helps us with our understanding. And it's hard to get the context when you just kind of jump in to the middle of a text and you don't have everything that comes before it. So just as you're turning there, I'll just give a very brief uh, kind of orientation as to where we're at in the epistle to the Ephesians. Um, this is one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison to the church at Ephesus. And that church in Ephesus really did hold a special place in Paul's heart. Um, That's where he spent the longest amount of time in his missionary work. He was in Ephesus for over three years. His protege and partner, Timothy, was the pastor at Ephesus. And this was a church that really did care deeply about sound doctrine, about deep understanding of the gospel. And we we can get that even from Acts 19 and 20. That's the account of Paul's time in Ephesus. And it comes through in that, that this church cared about getting the gospel right and about understanding sound doctrine. In Revelation, John writes to the church at Ephesus and he commends them that they don't put up with false teaching And in this epistle, it makes sense because we find these high doctrines. Paul is considering the Trinity. He's considering God's decree and predestination and the reign of Christ and the authority of the church and justification by faith alone. All of that is packed into this little epistle that Paul writes, just these several chapters. And there's also much in the way of love and unity. And that's also something that the church at Ephesus always had to be reminded of. This was a church that was made up of a very mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles. And so they were constantly being exhorted to love one another and to have unity with one another. And so we're jumping in right in the middle of this epistle. We're looking at chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. So let me read uh, read that now, Ephesians chapter three, verses fourteen through twenty-one. Hear the word of the living God. <clears throat> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you Lord God, please bless the proclamation of your word this morning. Please give us all hearts to receive what you have for us. Lord, please get me out of the way of your spirit and of your word working in us. Father, I pray that you would simply be using me as a humble mouthpiece to communicate what your word is exhorting us to. And I do pray, Lord God, that you would again give all of us spirits to receive that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, this is the very center of this epistle. This really is the hinge of this letter of Paul's. Most of Paul's letters divide pretty neatly into uh, the first half, generally doctrine, you know, uh, the the theological teaching, and then the second half is oftentimes application. Okay, how does that work out in our lives? And right now, this little section is the transition point. This is the climax of the doctrinal section of Paul's epistle, if you want to look at it that way. And again, this probably is one of the, if not the most dense, most theologically rich books that we have in all the Bible. There's so much packed into this. And then this section is the climax of this book. And so in a lot of ways, this text that we're considering today is a high point in all of scripture, in all of the New Testament. It's up there with texts like Romans 8 and John 17, those passages where we read it and we are just awestruck and we stand and just let it kind of wash over us and it's just too deep for us to understand and it's hard to even get our minds around it. That's what this text is like. It is a crescendo in the New Testament. And what it is, is a call for Christians to, to attain and aspire to reach the incredible heights that are attainable by the Holy Spirit in this life. And so when we read this text, we should look at this and think to ourselves, I want that. This is what I want to be. This is the place where I want to get. But oftentimes, as Christians, we're way too easily satisfied For many of us, most of the time, we're very content. We're very comfortable having kind of understood and learned the basic doctrines, the the fundamentals of the faith. Regularly attend church, at least virtually. Maybe Bible study in the midweek. And then we're pretty much seeing ourselves just to kind of do that and coast through this life and just kind of wait until we get on to the next life. But that's not at all what God's people are called to. The calling for Christians is to constantly be fighting and striving and toiling to progress in the faith, to grow in our understanding. Hebrews five twelve through 14 says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God's people should never be content to kind of stay in the infancy of the faith. We should never be content just to dwell in the basics. But we are constantly, again, as I said, striving and fighting to attain the joy and the peace and the understanding and the blessedness that rightly belongs to us in Christ. And we think that all of these things, even what Paul's talking about in our text this morning, are just kind of put off for later. And we think to ourselves that for now, what we really need is kind of just enough of Christ to escape this life, to get out of this misery, and then we enter into blessedness afterward. Again, we have that attitude of uh, just enough, whatever that looks like. You know, we we show up to church, we're doing our devotions, kind of just enough reading of scripture to s- feel comfortable that we're Christians, just enough prayer. Instead of what we ought to be doing, which is digging and fighting and toiling, that's God's purpose for us. When we read this text in Ephesians, we shouldn't think to ourselves, yeah, that sounds great, wow, that's incredible, but that's all for later. It's God's purpose for us to experience much more blessing and much more of that heavenly bliss in this life than we generally think is possible. And I want to kind of give a caveat right from the outset that we do rightly acknowledge the tension between the already and the not yet. We know that yes, in the new Testament, according to scripture, that we are justified. The scriptures say that we are sanctified, that we are glorified, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies all in the present tense. And so there is a sense where already we have all those blessings and yet they're still not fully realized. It's not going to be fully realized until eternity. And so we do distinguish that and we do understand and acknowledge that. But most of, a lot of the time, we kind of use that as an excuse or as a, a way to rationalize to ourselves, not digging and striving and fighting to attain that blessedness. Again, there is much more for us, much more blessing, spiritual blessing in this life than we often think is possible. And so we shouldn't settle for a kind of lukewarm, just enough faith, knowledge, and trust. But We should have an attitude like Jacob when he was wrestling the angel of the Lord. And you remember he wrestled the angel of the Lord all night and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That should be our attitude as Christians, that we are fighting. It takes energy and strength and saying to the Lord, I will not let you go until you give me the blessings that you've promised me in Christ. And so first thing we have to do is recognize that what Paul is saying here is for Christians. It's for us to experience and it is actually attainable. He's not describing mere conversion. We could read this and think to ourselves, well, he's just talking about being born again. No, he's writing to the saints who are at Ephesus. He's writing to Christians, to people who are eternally secure in Christ, who are justified, who are on their way to heaven. And so it's not, he's not talking about conversion here. And it's not, again, this kind of very, flowery, superlative language where he's just kind of in an artistic way describing the Christian life. But he's sharing with the Ephesians and with us a prayer that he has for Christians. He says in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's sharing a prayer to God on behalf of Christians, praying that they would experience these blessings. And so if Paul is praying to God for Christians to experience these experienced these then clearly he believes that it's possible for us to get here and we also need to avoid thinking that these things are just kind of for the elite super spiritual few that this is for the people who have studied scripture their whole lives who have masters and doctorates degrees maybe they can get here but kind of the regular christian in the pew is not getting here that's not the case paul wrote this letter to ordinary christians just like us, intending for them to strive and aspire to reach these blessings. And so what are the blessings that Paul is describing here and praying for? And obviously, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks in this text. There is so much here. So necessarily, we're going to have to be pretty brief. And I just want to pull out the three main blessings that Paul is praying for Christians to experience. The first thing in uh, verse 18, he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. To comprehend to understand the gospel, to understand what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, how God has worked in history and in reality to save a people for himself, to redeem a people for himself, to comprehend the great depths and the great magnitude of what God has done. As Christians, we should be interested in doctrine. We should want to go deeper and deeper That's part of the beauty that we recognize of the gospel, that it really is, the message of the gospel is so simple that a child truly can understand it and grasp it. And yet at the same time, the gospel is so deep that the greatest minds the world has ever seen could study this for their whole entire lives and not reach the depths of it. And so again, we shouldn't be content to remain infants in our understanding. Again, to have that sort of just enough level We want to press ourselves, to extend ourselves, to expand our capacity, to wrap our minds around the deep things. We shouldn't be intimidated by things like the Trinity, by like things like election and predestination and God's decree. We shouldn't be intimidated by the two natures of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man. We shouldn't be intimidated by the substitutionary atonement. These shouldn't be <clears throat> kind of five dollar theological concepts, but they should be things that all of us are very eager to understand and to grasp and not in a sort of prideful way because there's always that danger this church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation had to be rebuked because they were so invested in understanding sound doctrine and yet they drifted away their love for the Lord grew cold But that's actually the opposite of what should happen when we study sound doctrine. We're not trying to build ourselves up or reach a measure of pride or try to give ourselves the credentials to kind of beat people over the head with these doctrines. But rather, the desire for us to know these things comes from the place that God has chosen to reveal his glory to us through these doctrines, through the teaching of scripture, through the gospel. And so if we love God, our love for him should drive us to know as much about him as we can possibly know. Again, so much of the time we're just content. We're settled at having that baseline knowledge. If we love the Lord, our God, we should want to know him to the extent that he has chosen to reveal himself with as much depth as we can possibly attain. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians thirteen eleven and 12, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Again, <clears throat> implicit there, he recognizes and understands that tension of the already and the not yet. He says, as much as we can, as Deep as we can get in this life, it's still gonna be in a mirror dimly. It's still only gonna be partial knowledge. We're never gonna know fully until we see Christ face to face. And yet, He's not content to stay immature in his thinking. We should not be content to stay childish in our thinking and our reasoning and our understanding, but we should be constantly striving to grow in maturity, giving full effort to get as much as we can in this life, all the while knowing we're not gonna get all the way there. But that should be our attitude. So to comprehend the length and breadth and height and depth. The next thing Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, that's one of those, we read that and we just have to pause and let that sort of waft over us, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so this gets deeper than knowing the doctrine and understanding the, the facts and the truths that the Bible teach. But this speaks to intimate personal experience of the love of Christ it goes beyond what we can understand by just gathering the facts it actually requires us to have an intimate experience of Christ's love think of an illustration of um of d day the landings on the beaches of normandy that we have so much available on that. We can watch uh, you know, movies and documentaries. We can read. We can study. We can know all the events of that day in detail. But if you weren't there on those beaches, then you can't really know what it was to experience that. We can understand all the facts that we want. But if you were not there, then you don't know. That's what it is like here. We can understand all the doctrines. And this is why it's two sides of it. It's not just understanding doctrine. It's also knowing the love of Christ because we can understand the promises. We can comprehend the gospel. We can wrap our minds around it. But if you don't have intimate experience of the love of Jesus Christ, then you're not at this level of blessedness. And Paul wants Christians, he is praying for Christians to have that absolute knowledge and assurance of Christ's love for us, of what we have in him. And so it's more than just memorizing the promises of scriptures. It's more than just gathering the facts, but it is knowing absolutely beyond doubt because of the Holy Spirit's testimony to your spirit that Jesus died for you experiencing the comfort of the love of Christ in the midst of hardships and difficulties and suffering. It's having absolutely no doubt whatsoever that you will see Christ face to face. It is knowing that it truly is well with your soul. <clears throat> and we we hear these things, and still part of us says, this is too wishful. That's Yeah, we want that, but can we ever really have that? It seems too idealistic. But again, Paul is praying to God for Christians. Is it hard? Yes. Is it take actual labor and work and striving to get to this place? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't run for it. And Paul's not the only one who acknowledges that we can have this kind of certainty. First John chapter 5, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John is saying that he wrote his letter for the purpose that Christians could have that Total knowledge and understanding, that absolute assurance that you would know that Jesus is the son of God, that you would know what you have in him, that you would have certainty and confidence. Again, that doesn't mean that we're going to get there perfectly. We hold that tension of the already and the not yet, but I'm telling you, we can have much more assurance in this life than we often think is possible and than we often give credit to God for. And then the third thing to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's why I said every one of these could be probably three standalone sermons. There's so much there. But we as Christians know who is the fullness of God on this earth. Colossians 1, 19, for in him, in Christ Christ, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is the fullness of God. The the person of Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity. And Paul's prayer, Christ has sent his spirit into his people. And so, yes, we are born again. We are regenerated. We are made new. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, none of that is possible. But we can... As we go through this Christian life, have the spirit poured out on us more and more and more fully and more richly, the spirit of Christ dwelling more and more in us. And our Christian life really truly is the process of becoming more and more made after the image of Christ. It is being made more and more like the fullness of God, the person of Jesus Christ being filled more and more to fullness. And so the blessing that Paul is describing here is the blessing of sanctified, holy, Christian living, Christ-likeness, being more like Jesus Christ. Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter 1.15, he who called you, so as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Understanding that the one who called us has called us to imitate him. That Christ Jesus, the fullness of God in bodily form, perfectly reflecting the image of the triune God, living in all holiness and righteousness. And we have been filled with his spirit and we are being made like him. And the call for us is to reflect that holiness so much to the point that God is so glorified in our lives that people can see and take note of that. Jesus himself says that Uh, our light should shine among men so that they should see our works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That is a blessing to be like Christ, to live in holiness. When we are filled more and more with the Spirit, we are made more and more like Him who is the fullness of God, and He is more and more glorified in our lives and in the world. That's the blessing that Paul is talking about here. And again, we acknowledge That's not, we're not going to reach that fullness in this life. We are not going to be made perfectly holy. We're not going to be sanctified in this life. And one day though, we will perfectly reflect Jesus Christ. We're going to perfectly mirror him. First John chapter three, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know there's that knowledge again, that certainty. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So there is the acknowledgement that it's not until we see Christ in his fullness, face to face, in glory, that we are going to perfectly reflect him. However, We are called to grow in Christlikeness and more than we often think is possible in this life. We should be praying and striving and straining and desiring the Holy Spirit to be filling us up more and more that we would better reflect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we've ever felt like we've reached that point where we've made it, if we ever feel like, yes, I'm in a good place right now, I'm in a solid place, go further go higher. If you think you've gotten as high as you can in your Christian life, go higher. You're never gonna get there in this life, but we strive until the day that the Lord calls us home to be more and more like Christ. So never think that you've arrived. Never be content. Never think that you know enough, that you are certain enough, that you have enough assurance. Never think that you are holy enough. Keep going until Christ calls you home. Don't stop. Don't slow down. Our desire is for these things. It is possible for us to attain them in this life through the Spirit. So then our question should be, okay then, how? How do we preserve, uh, pursue these blessings? <clears throat> well, Paul goes on immediately uh, into chapter 4 and gives us some of that. Um, so, we could say so much about how we pursue these blessings in our lives. But again, for the sake of the limitations on time, we'll go straight to the, the chief primary way that we do that. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 17, the second half. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Again, the church in Ephesus constantly needed to be reminded about the way they should be walking in love and unity towards one another. And so he he mentions that in verse 17. And then immediately into chapter four, he goes on, take a look at uh, Ephesians 4, verses one one through three. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So again, like I said early on, when we read that section in Ephesians 3 that we're considering this morning, our response should be, I want that. And it's as if Paul here is writing to this church and he writes that and they're responding saying, yes, I want that. And Paul is saying, okay, now here's how you pursue that. See, God's chief means of sanctifying us, of making us more like him, and of blessing us in this life is by placing us in fellowship with other Christians whom he has called us to love. Um, he also touches on this. He He's sharing a prayer in Philippians that's similar to this. In Philippians 1, another letter that's all about uh love for one another as a reflection of our love for Christ. There's so much in there. But Philippians 1, 9 through 11, he says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So he says... And it's his prayer that they might abound more and more in love. Genuine love, not love that is marked by knowledge and discernment. It's not this sort of squishy, oh, we just need to love everyone. But it's a love that comes from a place of knowing the truth and discerning the truth. But that love, when it abounds, it produces the fruit of the righteousness of Christ to the praise and glory of God. That's the way Jesus said it himself. Uh, that the way that we would be known was for our love for one another. Um, so we we do, in this spirit of love, bear with one another. We put others before ourselves. We sacrifice for each other. We don't insist on our own way. You know, we think of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient, love is kind, does not insist on its own way. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And as we do this, as we grow in this, as we grow in this kind of selfless, sacrificial love for one another, what happens is we do become more and more like Christ. And we do experience more and more of these blessings of the Christian life. And also the people around us do. And that's the beauty of it, that... our relationships as Christians are mutually beneficial. We bless one another. When all of us who have been called together as a body of Christ are living the way Christ called us to live and are loving one another the way Christ has called us to, then we are all going to be greatly and richly blessed by one another. And so we encourage one another um, and and spur one another on. So even when we think of... uh, when we think about these specific blessings that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3, we see how we we reach and attain those through the blessing of being in fellowship with one another. So in comprehending the depths of the gospel, again, we encourage each other, but not only through teaching. I think a lot of the times we might think in that way, like, well, <clears throat> teachers can encourage each other in the truth. Teachers can help people to comprehend the gospel. But let me tell you, even just seeing the work of the gospel in other people, that gives us a greater understanding of it. When we are in fellowship with a with a brother or sister in Christ who God has lifted up from the depths of sins, whom God has given a new heart and to whom God has raised up to newness of life. And when we see that being played out in another person, we do get a deeper understanding of the gospel because we see its ramifications on real life. And so we bless one another in that regard. <clears throat> we bless one another uh, in helping each other to know more intimately the love of Christ. That's a big one. If we want to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, yes, we understand the doctrine, we understand that, but also we experience love and give love to other Christians. See, our call is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And part of doing that is loving the people who are filled with his Holy Spirit. Because love, we know, is active. Love does things. It's not just a feeling. But we can't... God isn't right here in front of us. Yes, we love God with our worship to him, but we also love God by loving and serving the people who are filled with his spirit. If we want to express love for our God, that means that we're going to love our neighbors. We're going to love the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And again... When we show that kind of love, they receive more and more that assurance of the love of Christ. And we receive love from one another. And when we get that, we experience more and more the assurance of Christ's love for us. God uses our love and our relationships with one another to encourage us and to strengthen us and to give us assurance. That is a great means of blessing. And this love, again, is active. It's a love of service. Jesus says himself, John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, that marks us. And Jesus there, the context that he's speaking in, what did Jesus just do? How did he show his love for his disciples that he's saying, now you imitate this? He washed their feet. Jesus humbled himself, serving his disciples, laying aside his own interests, laying aside his own uh, position and served them, looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of those around us. And so if we are to mirror that kind of love, it is of humble, affectionate service to one another. It's not, again, just based on feelings and kind of telling people that we love them, but actually caring more about one another than we care about ourselves. That's how not only we bless one another, but how we also are blessed in our Christian life. And also when Paul talks about... Um, being filled with the fullness of God, growing in our holiness, growing in our sanctification. We help one another in that too by being in fellowship with each other because we, um, as Christians living together and doing life together, we're sharpening one another and we're holding one another accountable. One of God's primary ways of putting our sin to death in us is by putting us in fellowship with other Christians who are gonna hold us accountable And so we need to have a level of maturity where we can humbly receive correction and where we're also able to graciously give correction to other Christians. We confess our sins to one another. So we're not putting on a face or a front. We're not trying to present ourselves as being so holy and much better than everyone else. But we actually confess and acknowledge to each other, not just to God, our sins. And we willingly make ourselves accountable to one another. And so when we sin and when we do stumble, we confess and we pray for each other. That's how we grow in holiness in this life. We are willing and wanting and desiring to do what it takes to live in faithful obedience to Christ. And that happens in the context of fellowship where we are accountable, where we're subject to the authorities in the church and again, accountable to one another. And if someone gives you a rebuke, don't be offended, but take it. Take it to heart because you know that they're coming at you from a place of love and a place of wanting to see you grow more and more in Christ-likeness. And if you see a brother in sin, don't be afraid and shy, but be gracious and confront it. Hold people accountable. That's how we grow in holiness. And it is by these means, being in fellowship with each other and in love for each other, that we experience those vast and deep blessings of the Christian life. And again, this isn't something that can just happen passively. You're not gonna sit there. You're not gonna come here and sit here week after week and have no part in the life of this church and have no part in digging into the scriptures and praying and going after God. You need to toil for these blessings. And that's also the tension of Christianity, isn't it? We like to point out those tensions of the faith because we're talking about receiving blessing, right? Paul is praying that these Christians would receive blessing from Christ. And yet the way to do that is by looking outward and looking to bless others. And then when we do that, we end up receiving the blessings of this Christian life. And so you shouldn't hear this sermon or you shouldn't read this text and say, well, what can, what should everyone else be doing to help me feel this way or to experience these blessings? We should all be saying, what should I be doing so that the people around me experience these kinds of blessings? That's, again, the seeming paradox, the tension of the Christian faith. And so we do toil and we do strive and we do labor and we're called to fight for these things and to work for these things. Yet all the while, we know that we can't reach these things by our works, by our own efforts. See, there's a reason why these may seem just too far off, too wishful thinking, too pie in the sky. And it's because we can try as hard as we want and we're not going to get here. But verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. It's not our work. We're called to work. We are called to labor. We're called to pursue. But it's the one who can do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Our confidence, see the the reason why as Christians we can labor in this life to achieve these blessings is because we're confident that we have a God who can and will pour out these rich blessings on us in a greater way than we can even imagine in this life. We like to say, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart of man can imagine uh, what God has prepared for those who love him. That looks forward to eternity, yes, and that's true. But also God right now in this life is able to do more than we ask or think. God is more powerful than we think. He's more good than we think. He's more loving. He's more generous. He's more kind. He's more gracious than we think that he is. And so if we read what we read this morning and we say, that all sounds good and well, but that's for later, that can't happen. We can't get there right now. You know what that does is it gives God a great disservice. If we think that God is not able to bless us this way in this life with these spiritual blessings, then we do God a disservice because he can do far more abundantly than you can even ask or think that he can do. And at the end of all this, Paul doesn't say, I'm praying that you receive these blessings and it's, you know, and when you do, boy, it's great. It's, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It is. But that's not the end of this. Because his response is not, yes, it's just amazing. It's incredible. We have this great peace of mind and, and I'm at joy and peace. His response is to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our response is not, boy, it feels great to receive these blessings. But our response is gratitude, praise, honor, and worship to our wonderful, merciful, faithful God in blessing us so richly. We don't achieve these for their own end because we want to have assurance and we want to experience love. It's a great blessing, but ultimately we pursue these because we want to know the glory of God and we want to glorify God in our lives. And when we have great assurance of our faith and when we know the love of Christ and when we grow in holiness and Christ-likeness and when we understand the gospel, we glorify God more and more and more. And that's a true sign of blessedness, isn't it? When we receive the blessings of God and then we turn right back around and fall on our knees and praise God for them. That's the response. We get, we have these things that we didn't think was even possible to attain. And so we give God praise and thanksgiving because he is a marvelous God and he is able to do wondrous things. And so we, as we move forward into a new year, a new year that's going to have more than likely more trouble than this past year had, where there's a lot of uncertainty. And as we have a, as a church continue to grow, even as we move away from now, leaving this hotel, going to a new location, we're going through times where things are changing, the Lord is working. Our, our aim, we should be striving to reach deeper and deeper these levels of blessing. And that's going to come, yes, primarily through studying the word of God, through praying to, the God, to our God, to uh, you know, fighting to expand our capacity of understanding. But it's also going to come for, through us loving one another, being with one another, being united to each other in faith and in fellowship to the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, all of it, we desire these blessings. We strive for them but all the glory belongs to our God who has poured them out so richly on us in our savior, Jesus Christ.